Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Visual Wow, the podcast for people passionate about live events. We're obsessed with creating and capturing those wow moments. This is the place the top pros come to share their secrets. Now, here's your host, Jack Hartsman. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Jack Hartsman, your host, and today's guest is John Harrington, photographer extraordinaire based out of the Washington, D.C. area, award-winning, internationally recognized, best-selling author, uh, the man who has shot for just about every magazine association that I can think of in the photographic community. I have personally known John for almost 30 years. We work in different circles, but seem to cross paths on a regular basis. And John, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jack. I'm really glad to be here. Well, John, like I mentioned, uh, I can remember when you and I were, uh, when I was doing room shots for catering jobs and you were the press photographer over my shoulder, you were working for either the Washington Post or Rolling Stone or, or Time or Life or Newsweek or all those archaic publications that barely exist anymore. Uh, always a guy that uh, I looked up to, mostly because you're a head and a half taller than I am. That I uh, am. And I'm, really, uh, <laughs> and I'm really excited to have you here on the program because uh, as much as we walk in a lot of the same circles, uh, we, we walk uh, or speak very different languages in photography. Uh, you are a best-selling author. Uh, I see that you're still uh, on the top of the Amazon list and it looks like the B&H list with, with your uh, uh, business of photography with more than 800 pages. I can't even think of 800 pages of just about anything. Uh, I see that you're doing video work now with a recent HBO project that I want to hear all about. And um, Tell me, uh, tell me what's going on with you. Uh, tell me, why don't we start with the easy things? Uh, why don't you tell our listeners the kind of people that you're used to traveling with, associations or the magazines or publications that sent you all over the country, all over the world, and, and then where, let's pivot and, and what we're doing today. So, so I, I've been doing this for a, for a while, and you know, I started out uh, uh, you know, working at, at you know, small events, small venues here in, in D.C., where I'm based, but as you mentioned, I do travel a fair amount. And it's just been a very long process for me to get to kind of where I am. But in, along the way, I, you know, I did find myself fortunate enough to do some work for then Us Weekly and Rolling Stone and, um, and, and just a number of publications. Washington Post, I, I started out kind of pitching my stuff to, uh, to the Washington Post and uh, they got an, they picked up enough of my photos on a on a on a freelance basis that they decided that they were going to start having me do the work on an assignment. So that's how I ended up kind of doing assignments for the Washington Post, covering state dinners and and other kind of uh, kind of celebrity events, whether it was uh, the Gold Cup out in out in Virginia or you know you know stuff with the Redskins. So it's just been a kind of a broad cross section of of assignments that I've done. And, you know, my initial, initially when I started actually back in high school, I, I started out doing video work, kind of training on the old original video equipment, uh, transitioned when I went to college into working for the school newspaper and, and uh, the school yearbook. And then after that, uh, started freelancing for, for, uh, for this very small magazine that after about nine months worth of freelancing for them, they offered me a staff job uh, about four months after college. So uh, I worked for them for five years and then I've been freelancing, uh, you know, after I, after I got laid off actually from them, and there's a whole story about it in my book uh, on how I kind of got laid off unexpectedly. I was forced, really forced into the world of freelance uh, with rent to pay and, you know, having to feed myself. 
And so uh, it's just been this uh, interesting meandering path from uh, from starting out as a kind of a you know s- scrappy freelancer to you know trying to kind of make a go of it. And so far, I'm at you know 30 years and counting doing this. Yeah, it's interesting. As many photographers as I speak to, uh, how many of us, myself included, started in high school as a yearbook or a newspaper photographer, and we kind of got that bug and kind of made, as you said, a go of it. Uh, it was absolutely what happened to me. But you know, when I look at just some of the chapters in your book, I mean, you have seriously in the last looks like almost fifteen years that you're in your third edition of your book. I mean, you cover everything about how to seriously run a business, and and one of the things that that uh, I can tell photographers all day long about shutter speed and f-stop and lighting and modifiers and all that kind of good stuff. But I think the, the biggest thing that most photographers don't realize is this is a business like anything else. And, and you've actually taken the time to, to put it into a book that's, that's palatable for the average photographer that covers everything from copyright to how to hire an intern. And, and I think I just tip my hat to you for, for the amazing project that was. I can't even imagine how much time it took you. And, and here you are in your third edition. And, and uh, kudos to you for, uh, for getting that to market and continuing now almost 15 years later. Sure. Yeah, it's 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 really was started out as a labor of love for me, to be honest with you. It's not a it's not my revenue stream that, you know, how I pay my bills necessarily. But it started out because I was traveling the country, lecturing uh, and doing workshops and seminars for all the different photography trade organizations. And at each point, each place that I went, uh, people were really clamoring for you know, examples of how do I negotiate or how do I write an email or what does a contract look like? I might, you know, and, and so I would, I started out initially handing out, you know, photocopies of my contracts with my clients' names blacked out. And then I, you know, I started to actually, I did some work uh, with the National Press Photographers Association's Northern Short Course. And every year I would go there and every year I would assemble a binder uh, that was literally a three ring binder full of about 50 to 75 pages worth of photocopied documents and would hand them out to, you know, the first 50 people that came into the classroom. And I did all this at my, you know, the, you know, you, you, you did pay to go to the workshop that was, you know, payment to the NPPA, but I didn't get paid to do the lectures. I just did it because I wanted to, and I'll talk about more about that in a second, but I, what I found was that, uh, you know, people were really clamoring for this. And it really struck me when uh, later on in the day, one day I had a, a, one of the people that had been in my workshop and that had gotten the binder come up to me and say, hey, you know, uh, is do you have another copy of that, you know, your binder? I said, no, I don't. Why? Didn't you get one? I thought I gave you one. They said, yes, I, I did. But mine got stolen. And I felt really bad and I made arrangements for that person to get another copy. But the reality was, was that people literally were willing to steal this information in order to, uh, to, to, to know how to run their business better. And that spoke to a real, uh, uh, you know, almost desperation for this kind of information. And so I was lecturing, I want to say f- uh, fall of 2005, uh, I was lecturing uh, at a workshop at the Photo Plus Expo in New York City, and someone came up to me afterwards and asked me if I would be interested in writing a book on the subject, and they were with a publishing company, and, and so we undertook a you know month's worth of negotiations on how to do that and what that was, because I had not written a book before, and so settled on that, and I was off to the races with that first edition that you know, hit number one on the Amazon bestseller list for photography and, 
and uh, it's hovered between one and you know one and about fifty or sixty uh, since then with the various editions that have come out. And it's because I think. The information in the book is timeless uh, for the most part. There's not a lot in the book that's that's not uh, that is that isn't evergreen. I'm about the only section of the book that changes from time to time because it's a best business practice. The only thing that really changes is how do you register your copyright? And that's something that uh, when the fourth edition of the book comes out, we'll be making some updates and changes based upon the changes in copyright law and registration procedures since then. But I mean, for me. I, as I started out as a photographer, when I was trying to transition from staff photographer where I didn't have to worry about being a freelancer to freelance, I would go around and ask my colleagues that were other photographers and say, hey, how do I charge for this? What do I charge? What, how, what does a contract look like? And what was really frustrating for me was that they were treating this information like the nuclear codes. You know, they were not willing to share what they charged. And I just was really frustrated by that because all I wanted to do was come into the photography community and not you know, undercharge, not make a bad name for myself. I just wanted to come in and do the right thing. And I, I didn't want to upset people. And so when all of a sudden people weren't giving this information, I kind of said to myself, well, you know, if they won't tell me, I'm going to figure it out on my own and then I'm going to share it with everybody that I can, you know, that will listen. And here we are 30 years later and, you know, God willing, you've got some subscribers listening here. People are still listening. And so I'm still talking. Well, I, I got to tell you, um, you know, you know that I come from the event side of, of photography, uh, portraits, weddings, commercial and corporate events. And a lot of the people who are listeners of the Visual Wow podcast uh, touch that side of the world. And for the most part, photographers on our side of the fence are more worried about how pictures are going to get on Instagram for their party planners or their event producers. And they're not really thinking about the business side of photography. Now, for me personally, 15 years ago, when I joined the Washington Talent Agency, uh, I, I, I didn't just join for the stability of it, but uh, the owner of the company is also my best friend and my partner, Robert Sherman. And he's also a lawyer and a CPA, in addition to being a drummer in a band. And so, you know, he gave me something I never had. Uh, that is the backing of somebody who really understood the law, really understood accounting. I gave to him the visual side of the world, the marketing communications and how to get the message out. And it's been a pretty good, uh, it's been a really good partnership for me for 15 years. But there are things that he just doesn't do in his legal practice that re that affect photographers. And uh, as I look at the, the, the table of contents of your book as an example, there's things at the end of your of your book that are the most important things to me. And I'd love you to touch on some of them because I think that they're the kind of things that the photographers who are the regular listeners to – uh, to the visual podcast are really focused on events and weddings and, and that kind of stuff. And they're not thinking about copyright. They're not thinking about model releases. They're not talking about, uh, or thinking about breach of contract. And, and you, you're really, you've got a great backbone in, in those kinds of things, licensing and digital asset management. And I'd love you to touch on some of those more business sides of the photographic industry that, in my opinion, are forgotten by event photographers, yours truly uh, at the top of that list. And they're some of the most very important things uh, that I think in order to succeed in the future, we all need to know much, much more about. 
Sure. Well, what I can do, you know, there's within the kind of the, let me kind of take it in in spheres, if you will, because there's licensing occurs no matter what, no matter what you're doing with when you produce images, you are in one way, shape or form conveying to a client a license. Now, whether that license is integral and integrated into the rate that you're charging or whether it's a separate line item uh, because the pictures are being produced over a day and then maybe used over two years for a marketing campaign, the the images are always being licensed. You're, you're delivering to the client photos for them to use on say a social media platform is giving them a license and it may be inferred or you may put that in writing in your contract. You are also giving them a license to use those photos uh, in wedding albums and in, uh, you know, prints that are framed and put on the wall. If you take a professional photo to a, to a photo service like a, a Walmart or online platform, you click a button that says you have authorization from the copyright holder to produce uh, reproductions of these images. You're affirming that you have that license or that right to do it. What you don't, as say a, a person who's been in a, uh, um, you know, been the subject of wedding photography, what you don't have is the uh, ability to turn around and take the photos that were delivered to you and give them to the Vera Wangs or the other dressmakers of the world for them to use those photos in advertising. If you're a wedding photographer, you might be honored that they're there, but ultimately those pictures are being used to advertise and sell a product uh, in, in that way. And so you want to make sure that, that that's part of, you know, that because that, that person could sign a model release to Vera Wang, using Vera Wang as an example only, and then Vera Wang thinks they have permission um, and they don't. And if those photos appeared on, say, the Vera Wang Instagram social media feed, because that's featuring one of her dresses, you would have recourse to pursue that if you wanted to. You may not want to. And maybe the compensation you consider is just, hey, tag me in your post. Or maybe the compensation you consider is, well, I need to be paid for that because had I done a shoot for Vera Wang, I would have made several thousand dollars. So we need to work something out. That's between you and Vera Wang in that case, because that that couple isn't necessarily going to get involved in that. Um, but you know, the, the couples the couples just can be honored to be on the Vera Wang Instagram feed. But that the reality is, is that when you deliver that wedding album, you deliver those prints. You are also delivering to them that what we call a personal license for their own personal use. It doesn't mean they get to make posters or note cards or anything of that sort. The same holds true with event photography. If you're doing event work, the generally speaking, first off, you're not getting model releases from all the people you photograph, and especially in Washington, you know, you're photographing politicians. So, you know, and since the podcast is going out around the country, no doubt, the you know, you may be photographing the mayor or a state elected official. All of those people, whether they're state elected officials, a mayor, or a member of Congress, none of them are allowed to appear in product endorsements. That's part of being an elected official is you can't be commercially endorsing someone. There's a whole bunch of hoops they have to, to jump through to be in that. So you, you can't have a photo that you took appear at, say, a leukemia lymphoma event and then have the Leukemia Lymphoma Society blow that picture up and run it in an ad campaign saying, donate to Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. That's that's going to get everyone in hot water. Uh, so th so the people that are in those pictures with their elected officials or private individuals who also have a right to privacy, they too should not have their photographs appeared in appearing in paid advertising or other commercial work without 
you know, without that subject's permission, and therefore then also without you as the photographer's permission. But as an event photographer, your pictures, the purpose of the pictures is not just to be distributed to the people that are uh, at the event, whether it's a, you know, a great picture of them, maybe you put up a photo booth and people can download a, a personal copy for their social media or to print if they want, but also to publicize next year's event. So they might put it in a, hand it out to a magazine or a newspaper to, to talk about the, the great success that the event was, uh, and also maybe to even use in an organizational newsletter. And they also might even use those photos saying, hey, last year was such a success, you know, please join us again this year. And might use a, a photo of, of a couple of people in that. So all of that kind of works out as far as licensing or usage. You've given that event organizer the ability to use those photos. As you made mention in the beginning of our talk, uh, of, of my intro, talked about how you were there photographing for the caterers. And a lot of times those caterers, those venue operators need those amazing photographs that someone such as yourself produces to promote and say, look, this is what it looks like with all the flowers and, you know, 10 tabletop, you know, 10 person, you know, 10 top. And here's where the stage would be if it's on this wall. Here's what it looks like on this wall. So those pictures that you produce are really actually kind of marketing or advertising photos that you're producing for, say, the hotel or the venue or the caterer to show off and showcase that work and almost always those photos have no people in them unless there's an errant uh you know uh, server in the background scurrying to light a last candle or something like that so those photos don't require modern releases uh but you're making those available and you are licensing those photos to that venue and oftentimes you might do that that work for less than a commercial photography shoot you might call for, uh, but you're doing that because part of your compensation is that 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 venue, that caterer might refer work to you in the future, which would generate revenue for you at kind of your normal event rates or or, or wedding weights or bar bat mitzvah rates. So those are you know those that's the way the compensation kind of works in those scenarios, but also. So whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are licensing your work. And one of the things when you're when you're getting a bride and groom to sign a wedding contract to hire you to say shoot a wedding, you want to make sure you're getting the, both the bride and the groom to sign that contract because part of that contract includes your ability, your right to use those photos for your own self-promotion, your own publicity. And that normally would require a model release, but in this case, it's part of the language of your, it's kind of your boilerplate language for your wedding contract. And in that ends, and, and the thing is, is that prior to the bride and groom being married, they're, they are two separate legal entities. And so you want to make sure you're getting both of them to sign off on the granting of those rights to them. Because if you just get, say, the bride to sign it because she's looking for the photographer and the groom appears in those photos, the groom could come back at you and say, hey, I, you know, when she was my fiance, she signed this. She's not even my wife then. And now you're using pictures of me to advertise your services. You need to pay me. And that payment... <clears throat> excuse me, that payment could very well be in excess of what you got paid to do the wedding, uh, lawyers get involved and what have you. The other thing you don't want to do is, is say a, a parent is paying for a wedding and so they want the contract. That's fine if they want to sign the contract, but there still does need to be a place for the bride and groom uh, to sign that contract individually. I, I got to tell you, I, all the years I've been doing this and, and I've talked about wedding contracts a bazillion times, I have never heard somebody say, 
what you just said. Never. And it makes so much sense. I mean, just this past weekend, I, I did a wedding, actually, believe it or not, in the middle of all these COVID times, I actually did a really nice wedding uh, at our park high up in Washington. And and the groom, uh, the groom is in military intelligence and can't have his name listed anywhere for social media or stuff like that. But it was discussed in advance. That said, the bride's parents signed all the contracts. And, you know, because I'm not your average show photographer and, and a rookie, you know, I don't publish without talking to people in advance anyway. But your point is so well taken. It shouldn't be that difficult, no matter who is the person initiating the contract, that you get the bride and groom's signature together um, on a contract for just a legally binding purposes. Now, it's, it's really a great point. And a lot of people wait to the end of an interview to, to make mention about this. You've got so much knowledge. You've got so much to offer to so many people. I just want to remind people to find out more about John Harrington, about his book, reach out to this guy because he loves to talk about just about anything. He's very passionate about photography, johnharrington.com. Um, it, it's, 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 there's a lot of really great information. This man uh, shoots for both sides of the aisle and um, uh, again, amazingly accomplished. My dad used to be able to recognize me when I was shooting on Capitol Hill by the, the fact that I made my own batteries and they, he could tell what my batteries look like on top of my flashes. But John was a head and a half taller than me, and it's really easy to pick him out of a crowd. Now, back to the interview. Um, I really appreciate what you said about that. And I was just going to mention that um, when we started having to deal with giving uh, digital images to brides and grooms, uh, you know, 2005, 2010, um, it never occurred to me that a bride and groom might actually take our images and post them on another website, pretending like it's coming from the photographer and having family and friends buy the pictures, even if it's just a five by seven or an eight by 10 from their website. And then they collected the proceeds from their own guests. Uh, it, it was an amazing thing when we found out this was happening. It happened to three or four. Uh, we, we, we caught three or four of our clients doing it in a single year, and we changed our contracts. It says that when we give you images for social media, for sharing with your family and friends, uh, it's to be done without profit. And you'd think it was common sense, but it absolutely was not common sense. Yeah, when I started uh, doing weddings, and I've done weddings off and on over the years, but when I started doing these weddings that had that digital component to them, and, and frankly, even before then, the negatives uh, as well, uh, you know, the challenge was, uh, and I had this experience once very early on with a wedding that I did, where the bride was a very well-to-do attorney. She rewrote my contract several times, uh, back and forth. Uh, I was kind of entertained by it and participated because it was just a, a fun experience. Uh, but what was interesting to me was that the bride had used these photos, and I had my commitment to her was. Uh, once your album is produced and once the first primary print order is done, I'll deliver the digital files to you, the, you know, the, the full take of the digital files. Now, prior to that, I also was, excuse me, prior to that, I was also willing to do that uh, with negatives upon request. Uh, but again, also that final, that first print order had to be complete because the... The quality, quality of those pictures 
was a reflection on me as a professional. And I didn't want them to be taken into a cheap place and have them done poorly and have them go, oh, remind me not to use your wedding photographer as they're looking at a photo on the wall and seeing that it wasn't printed optimally. And I will tell you that that experience with that, that, uh, that patent lawyer bride that I had was very interesting because I did deliver to her a, a, a sizable print order. I did deliver to her a really top end album that was, you know, professionally done. You know, I didn't assemble it, but I, you know, I laid it out and used the whole online services to do that and, and deliver it. And she was so excited. And then I said to her, and here is your, you know, disc with your high res files on it. And she, you know, that was it. I thought we were done. And maybe four to six months later, the bride called me because at the time I'd said to her, look, we can do parents albums as well. Your side of the family is going to want a different parents album than your husband's side. You know, so we'll use kind of this base. Let's say there's 100 photos, 150 photos in the album. We're going to do 100 that are the basic ones. And then the other 50, we're going to pull out pictures of your father's side for your, you know, excuse me, we're going to pull out photos for your husband's side and we're going to put in photos of your family, your Aunt Betsy or whomever. And then for your, for the groom's parents album, we'll swap out your Aunt Betsy for, you know, his Uncle Joe, right? So they were two custom albums. So the bride asked me, she finally called me four or six months later and said, hey, I really would like to, t I thought I could do it myself. I'd really like to have you come by and we can go through and do this together. Uh, I'd really like to do a bridal album for my mom. And I said, okay. So I went to her house and sat down. And uh, as I walked in the house, she had a, a number of my photos printed as eight by 10 on her, on her stairwell and on her mantle, you know, all around the house. And at first I saw them and I was like, oh, I'm glad my photos were received so well. But then I looked closer at them and I, I, she caught me staring at one of them. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I go, what do you mean? She goes, don't look at that photo. I said, she says, in fact, don't look at any of the photos that are up there. I'm like, why not? She goes, oh, she's like, they look so terrible. All the ones that you had printed for us, they look great. Those photos I sent to Snapfish and they just didn't look, they don't look good. I'm not happy with them. I probably should just have you redo them, but I just, you know, they're already framed. And I'm like thinking to myself, oh, this is my reputation on that stairwell going up to their second floor, just just being beaten down. And even though sitting on the coffee table here is this great wedding album, I'm looking like a dog photographer with all these bad photos, you know, adorning their hallways. And it was a real testament to me that, you know, to, to not, not, not uh, forget that part of the service we provide is selecting that proper vendor, making sure that, because the issue that she was having was a color space issue. By and large, that was a color space issue uh, more than anything. They were not printed in the right color space. And that's kind of what they look, why they look muddy and murky and, and they were a little underexposed. Right, right, right. And unfortunately that is something that photographers worldwide have been, have been battling for, for a hundred years. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as much as she threw herself on the sword uh, that they were printed improperly, the reality is that that she was trying to save a few dollars. And, mm -hmm. and this is the age old question about releasing high res images to clients. When you're trying to be a good guy, you're trying not to pin people back into a corner, uh, trying to be a good professional, but also trying to get your pictures 
uh, onto people's mantles and onto people's stairwells so they can see those pictures. Uh, you find an answer to that question, you and I can both retire because that is that is really a difficult one. And, and with uh, morals and ethics involved with it, it's, it's really tough. But I, I certainly feel your pain on that. I go through it on a regular basis myself. So let me ask you this, John, just to kind of pivot a little bit from uh, if you will, the, the color of photography. Let's move over to something that we have all been dealing with a whole lot more, uh, let's just say since March, since, uh, since the idea of, you know, the age-old business practices that we should all put, you know, several months of, of money aside. So God forbid we lose a job, our freelance work kind of dries up for a little while, we should be able to survive. Nobody planned on a global pandemic uh, kicking us in the teeth for, for six months or for a year, or however long it's going to take. And it brings us to something that's really important and not everybody handles it the same way. And that is how to handle breach of contract or to make it sound not quite as bad because I think a lot of the contractual issues that photographers are dealing with right now is not technically breach because the client did something wrong. The client is feeling like they've canceled their event for COVID reasons or other reasons connected. And since they're not doing it, they must not have to pay. You and I, on the other hand, know that that's absolutely inaccurate because if they don't pay, we don't survive. How have you been handling, because I know you've got a pretty decent contract, how have you been handling client deposits, client um, situations where when people are asking for their money back because they've postponed their events? So there's a whole section actually in the book about contracts and 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 cancellation charges, and I, I, I actually found this out and and fortunately protected myself going way way back to 9/11 back in 2001 because I had you know a full day of photography booked for on 9/11 uh, started out with early morning portraits then there was a, actually there was an event at the White House at I think one o'clock I had a reception that afternoon and and then something else that evening it was just chock full that day. And none of it was editorial news photography for that day. And, you know, 9-11 hit. And the next thing I know, I'm getting, you know, I'm finishing up my first portrait session. And my phone starts ringing with editorial clients. And these editorial clients are saying, hey, we need you here. Hey, we need you there. Can you do this? Can you do that? And uh, my cancellation clause is specific in that it says that, uh, if we are able to rebook the time we have committed to you, then there's no cancellation charge. Otherwise, the full cancellation charge applies. And so I had to tell these editorial clients, Forbes and Newsweek, I had to say, I can't. I'm booked all day. And, you know, of course, as things were happening, you know, we had no idea that the national airspace would be shut down. We had no idea that the world would come to a halt in the United States for, for a long period of time. And so I was turning away work because I had contractually obligated to do these other events. And, you know, it wasn't until a few hours later that I realized, you know, uh, my clients are calling and canceling me. And so I'm like, okay. And then I start calling back to, you know, the, the Forbes and the Fortune and Newsweek. And they're like, no, we're, we're covered. We're good. And I'm like, okay, well, I lost that work. And so then when it came time to charge those cancellation charges, you know, of the five clients that I had cancellation charges with, 
four of them were understanding. One of them was kind of standoffish. I can't believe I'm not. And I, I said, and I kind of explained it to them and you know, they, they did pay. And on some, on one hand, I kind of felt bad about it. But the other hand is, you know, if I'm not doing an event, I might be doing news photography and news photography is always going to be that late breaking thing where you get one shot at, at, at taking the assignment before they, you know, go down the list to the next photographer. And so kind of that same mentality played out during the uh, during the beginning of the pandemic where I had a number of assignments. And uh, in this case, you know, again, you know, as we look back on the pandemic and how it started, hindsight's always 2020. Right. And we had no idea that, you know, six months in as we're you know, recording this, that, that, uh, that it was seven months. And I guess that uh, it was going to go on for as long as it has, but, in this case, you know, the beginning of it, as I was having things book, uh, I was enforcing the cancellation clause, and but I was making an exception. I was saying to them, look, you know, when you reschedule your event, let me know and we'll apply what you paid towards that rescheduled event. And, you know, I have emails from them saying, thanks, I know that's not, you know, required, but I really appreciate your flexibility. So I was able to turn my cancellation clause into kind of uh, our photographers being flexible and understanding. And it gives me, it afforded me the ability to do that with those clients. Uh, and if there were, if it was kind of a one-off thing or if it was a portrait or something like that, that I was able to extend that, that, uh, that consideration to that client and, uh, and, and have a continue on good terms with that client. Now, you know, fast forward now, I'm sure I've heard stories, by the way, of a lot of photographers, saying that, that, uh, that, you know, that because they didn't have a cancellation clause in their contract, that they were, you know, they were losing thousands of dollars a week uh, off of work because they didn't have that kind of a clause. And if you have the clause, you always can be generous and waive it, but you at least can come from that strength, that position of strength rather than, you know, hoping that maybe they'll pay you. Well, I, I, you know, when you, when you mentioned nine 11, I, I got completely sidetracked because I was thinking back to, um, the books back from the eighties called a day in a life of photographers in different cities. And then just for a brief moment, I was thinking about your morning of September 11th and my morning of September 11th, because I woke up at the Plaza hotel in New York city to the atrocities that were going on. And I watched the whole thing happen. And I was actually in New York on nine 11 and I got landlocked for three days in New York. We weren't allowed off the Island um, until the 14th. And I had many jobs here in DC that I couldn't get back from. I had the reverse problem. I couldn't get home to shoot my jobs because I was stuck in New York and not allowed to leave. Anyway, I digress about 9-11, but I just wanted to come back and say, I think, especially when you are an experienced professional, like, like people like you and people like myself, you also have to consider the human sacrifice or the human, uh, not sacrifice. Hey, Hunter, scratch that word. I don't want human sacrifice to be in there. Um, let me see if I can reword that. John, I think when you're a, a professional like you or, or like myself, you have to think about people, how they're, the, the human response to our answers and how compassionate we can be when someone's inquiring about either getting a refund, returning a deposit or, or converting that deposit into future, uh, into future money for their next event. And I think we have to take in consideration if they're a repeat client. And I think we have to take in consideration 
um, their posture. It's much easier to talk to somebody who is understanding than somebody who's screaming at you for their money because it's a, a, a dire situation for them and, and the world's going to come to an end if they don't get their $500 back. Have you had any experience like that? Fortunately not. I mean, I, I took my lead on that idea of future credit from the airlines where the airlines were saying, look, you know, we're not going to refund you your money, but we'll let you use it for future air travel. And so that was kind of where I got the idea to do that. And I, but I've not had anyone uh, kind of be aggressive or angry with how I've been handling it. Uh, I, I am aware that there are some photographers who attempted to enforce cancellation clauses and did get kind of an adverse reaction from from those clients. And, you know, I think ultimately, as you so aptly put it, you do need to take into consideration all of those factors. You know, if this is a one-off client or, you know, is this your long-term repeat annual event client, uh, you know, are you working for them multiple times a year? You know, those are all of the factors that weigh in. And that's why there's really, it's really important to have quality client relations and relationships because, that affords them that flexibility. You know, it also affords them the flexibility of, oh, you need me to stay an extra 20 minutes. I'm not going to bill you. I'll just, you know, your event's running long. I'll do the extra 20 minutes or something like that. You know, those, those are the benefits of having that ongoing solid relationship with a client where they can trust you and you can trust them and, you know, you get paid on time kind of thing. No, I, I think those, uh, I, I think, I think the human aspect is something that a lot of photographers uh, really, uh, really just don't pay enough mind to that's all they're way too much focus, uh, just on the bottom line. And, and I think the human aspect is what separates the men from the boys in our business. Look, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things I want to talk to you about. Uh, I'd love to have you, I'd love to do this in a part two, uh, in a few weeks or a month. And we can talk about all sorts of stuff, uh, especially things like digital asset management. I think we have a lot of photographers that would love to hear that about you uh, or hear about that, sure. from, hear about that from you. But, you know, uh, just just last night, my uh, my family and I, we were sitting down, believe it or not, for, to watch some television. Nobody's done that in the last six months. Uh, and I, I correlated something that I saw out of the corner of my eye on your Facebook page uh, to Swamp, an HBO special that apparently you had something to do with. Uh, tell me how you got involved with a video project like The Swamp. Sure. So I've been my actual early first official training in in uh, being creative was in the video world uh, back when I was in high school. Uh, I took some some courses uh, to learn how to do it for you know cable television for the you know community access cable TV. Uh, shelled that experience and went into the still world and and probably. About 15, 20 years ago, I started doing a video series. There's a whole bunch of my different videos that are kind of evergreen up on YouTube about the equipment that I use and stuff like that. So I've always kind of had a hand in video, but I really started doing a lot more video probably in the last five or 10 years. Uh, done some work for Showtime as a director of photography for uh, one of their series, uh, The Fourth Estate. And I also did this work with HBO on the Swamp, uh, uh, focusing on kind of what happens in Washington. I will say I, you know, I, I had a bit part, if you will. I did do some cinematography for it. They had, you know, several of us doing work. It was a hour long program. I can't give you an exact quantification of the number of minutes that I had, but most of what I did was 
kind of hard to get to, hard access. They reached out to me uh, and and wanted you know my uh, my particular skill set. When someone says no, you can't go in there, or you can't get this, or you can't get that. Somehow or another, I end up finding a way to make it happen. Uh, and, and so that was kind of what I was brought in for was some of that uh, kind of that hard scrabble. How do you get it when no one says you can get it kind of thing? And so, yeah, I was really pleased to see that come out. That was actually during the impeachment trial. Oh, so long ago, back in uh, uh, November, December of last year. And uh, it, took, it was supposed to come out in the spring. I guess they delayed it till August. And uh, so it came out at the beginning of August and it was really fun to watch and fun to see the, the clips and how they use them. And, and, you know, my hard work end up on the quote unquote big screen, if you will. Um, but it's been video has been something I've been doing a lot more of during this. I've been doing a big uh, 40 plus hour educational series with uh, uh, a colleague of mine. And that's going to be up probably in the late fall or uh, early spring, um, you know, uh, teaching people how to use Photoshop and Lightroom and, and do all that kind of stuff. And so you know, it's something I wouldn't have been able to do if I'd been nonstop shooting. It was over 300 hours of editing uh, and probably 21 days worth of, of actual principal photography in a studio uh, doing this instructional stuff. And that was a lot of fun. And I really uh, tried to use that also as a way to force myself to get super proficient at, uh, at premiere. I'm really good at Photoshop and Lightroom and you know, all that stuff, but I wasn't as pro- proficient in premiere as I wanted to be. And so by, by sitting down and really taking these, those quiet days, if you will, of the pandemic with no phones ringing and forcing myself to use that to, to, you know, learn. And I, you know, I'd watch something, I go, wait a minute, I can, I, I, I know I can make that better. I know I can tweak that audio. And so then I'd go and watch a YouTube video for 20 minutes on, you know, two or three YouTube videos on how to do what I was trying to do. And then I would immediately take it over and apply it to this, to this, uh, <coughs> excuse me, to this section on the, how I'm trying to do a, a motion graphic or how I'm trying to do a cut. And, you know, so I really, you know, took, tried to take the maximize my downtime to, to become just as proficient in Premiere as I am in Photoshop. So. Oh, I, I think that's great. That's how, that's how I was ended up uh, able to launch the podcast. The, the, the extra time that you never thought you were going to have to actually hone your skills. Yeah, now I need to just hone my French and my Spanish and, and, and you know, got a few more languages I want to learn before this pandemic is over. <laughs> I totally understand. Well, John, listen, I truly appreciate uh, you coming on to the program, sharing your, your time with us. Uh, again, I, I always envy the fact that you are a best-selling author and, and the years that we've known each other in the field, it, it's just always a... a you're just at a level that, that is something that I've always, always respected. And I, I really do appreciate you coming on the program. JohnHarrington.com, uh, best-selling author of the best business practices for photographers, invaluable information, uh, something I think every photographer should, should really put their eyes on. John, uh, any last thoughts? Thanks for having me, Jack. I really appreciate it. It's been, you know, been my honor and pleasure to call you a friend low these many years and <laughs> low many years to come, I hope. And I'm happy to come back and talk about other things when when you want me. Just uh, reach me, reach out to me, and I'm sure I'll have free time, especially during this pandemic, and we'll make it work. I look forward to doing it again. Well, I'm just going to give a little plug out because a friend of mine just started a podcast. Uh, my friend Doug Sandler just started a podcast on early early year Mustangs, and I know that you are the, the uh, proud owner. <laughs> of an early early year what's yours a 65 right no no uh, let's be careful there it's the seventh day of production 1964 and a half oh, mustang I am, I am terrible yeah yeah 
Don't shortchange me. Uh, it's a 64 and a half, although that's technically a 65. And, and uh, thankfully, a year ago uh, this week, actually, it took gold at the uh, Mustang Club of America's Grand Nationals down in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, it is uh, something that I, I really enjoy driving and, uh, and, and taking out to car shows. And, and uh, it's, it's something that I do with my what little spare time I have. Uh, it's just something fun to do. I taught my 16-year-old how to drive, daughter how to drive stick on it. Uh, so she learned to drive stick on the Mustang and my, my 11 year old now will, once she turns 16, will will probably learn to drive stick on it as well. Cost me a clutch, but was absolutely well worth it. So. I, I, I totally get it. I will, uh, I will definitely send you a link to Doug's podcast about that. Yep. Listen, uh, I'm going to stop the, uh, I'm going to stop our podcast here, but hold on for a quick second so that I can make sure that I get all your uh, social media uh, links and things like that for the show notes, which will be very comprehensive. Again, everybody, uh, my, my wonderful listening audience here for visual. Well, I'm Jack Hartsman, your host, a big thanks goes to John Harrington, johnharrington.com thanks so much we'll see you next time thanks for listening to visual wow if you like what you heard like us on facebook twitter and tell your friends go to visualwow.com for more info if you didn't like what you heard just keep it to yourself know a pro we should be talking to on the show drop us a line talk with you next time on visual wow